Hey everyone, welcome back to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Before we get started, just a couple quick announcements for you. Uh, If you've headed over to our YouTube page recently, you may have noticed we have some updated artwork for our banner there. Uh, That is thanks to listener David Polk for putting that together for Sean and me. Uh, We're very thankful to have that there, and I think it looks quite a bit better than what we had before. Also, on the podcast side of things... If you check out where any podcasts are found, you might notice that the artwork there has been updated as well. And that is thanks to listener Brian Sanders for putting that together for us. So uh, thanks again, guys, for doing that. It's been greatly appreciated. Now, on to the show. Episode 7, Sean and I bring in a great guest, Amber O'Hearn, and we got right into the thick of it. So I want to give you a little bit of a background of Amber before we start the interview so you have an idea of kind of where she's coming from with the types of questions we, we ask her. Amber actually first started kind of experimenting with a meat-only diet uh, about nine years ago. And the original reason for that was primarily for some fat loss. Uh, She had followed a plant-based diet in the past and had luck losing fat on that type of diet, but had started to notice that that was no longer kind of working. And in fact, uh, it actually started to kind of make her gain some weight. So she decided to go a different direction and focus on meat only. And um, as she kind of kept playing around with this nutritional approach, she also noticed a a pretty big health breakthrough for herself. Uh, Amber had type 2 bipolar disorder, uh, which is marked with things as as grave as suicidal depression. And uh, when she got into the all-meat diet, she noticed that that had gone into complete remission. So it was, uh, needless to say, a a massive lifestyle change for her. Um, One of the other things she notes that uh, was important to her, just interesting, I guess, is that you know, on the all meat diet, she's just a lot more able to kind of just trust her appetite. She kind of knows when, when her body says she's hungry, it's time to eat. And if it's not saying it's hungry, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have to eat as much. So it's a little bit of a kind of freedom from being a slave to her food. Uh, Amber's also studied mathematics and computer science at the University of Toronto. If you uh, are more curious about some of the stuff that Amber's been up to in the last nine years that she's been all meat, definitely go check out her website at impura.ca and her blog at ketotic.org and give her a follow on Twitter at Keto Carnivore. All of those links are in the show notes for easy reference. Now, on to the interview. Oh, okay, Amber, let's just talk about, um, you know, how we sort of arbitrarily define carnivores, omnivores, Herbivores, you know, in my mind, a carnivore is something that eats meat. You know, and I think that's a that's a basic dictionary def- definition. But really, scientifically, it's really not clear cut, and there's really a lot of sort of arbitrary assignment to this stuff. And there's different ways we assign those things. Can you talk a little bit how that is determined and how you sort of uh, make that decision in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question because the term gets confused and contested, and then people are talking past each other and not really understanding what the argument is about. So some people use the word carnivore just to mean they that something somebody that eats meat as opposed to a vegetarian. And 
<clears throat> other people, well, the way we're using it is to say eating only meat. And if you if you look at animals in their natural environments, all of the animals that are being classified as carnivores or as omnivores or as herbivores have been found to be eating some plant foods and some animal foods. And so if you just look at humans and say, oh, well, obviously we eat some plants, so we're omnivores, then it's not a great definition because then every animal is basically an, an omnivore, including deer who have been often found to be munching on uh, rib bones that are left that is apparently to get minerals. Or you could say that my cat, who has probably come from a long line of cats that were fed chow that contained some kind of cornmeal in it, so you could say, oh, well, then obviously it, that's an omnivore. And if we end up with a definition where every animal is an omnivore, then we've learned nothing, right? <laughs> so the way that I like to decide if an animal is carnivorous or not is, first of all, does the animal in its natural evolved environment have a requirement to get at least some nutrition from meat? And to put it slightly differently, would it be difficult or impl implausible for that animal to get sufficient nutrition in its evolved environment if you didn't include some meat? And humans clearly have that necessity. There's been, never been a vegan society that has survived for multiple generations. And the reasons for that are almost certainly because of the needs of the brain where we need we just have a hard requirement for certain things like B12, iron, selenium, choline. Um, there, there are more. And if you don't get those, your brain doesn't develop properly. And so from that perspective, we need to have meat. A second criteria I like to use is whether or not your physiological system can is optimized for getting most nutrition out of meat. And that, again, humans qualify because we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system. We're most similar to dogs in that way with a very short colon. We need some colon. Even cats have colons, and they're definitely carnivores. Um, and we, we don't have very much um, ability to break down uh, the fiber out of plants the way that an herbivore does. And then finally, the kind of the opposite from the first one, it, is it possible, is it plausible that we can survive and thrive without any significant contribution from plants? And the answer to that is also yes. So by those criteria, then we are like every other carnivore, where we, we can thrive and survive without plants. And it, just because some of the species do eat plants doesn't really have any bearing on whether we should be classed as an omnivore or a carnivore. Yeah, a couple of interesting points, Amber. And uh, one of the things, you know, we look at, you know, look at cats, for instance. You know, cats, while clearly obligate carnivores, they have quite a capacity, actually, to handle a certain amount of carbohydrate in their diet. I've seen up to where they can tolerate up to 40% carbohydrate in the diet, they actually have significant capacity to digest and, and absorb sugar, up to about 90% of absorbed sugar, doing some of the reading I've done. The other thing that I think you maybe mentioned, and I've, I've read this elsewhere, is that 
in comparison to other primates, humans are fairly fat. You know, we're fairly fat primates, and I know that that, that I know the initial. I think it was Ilo who, who posed, and her partner opposed the expensive tissue hypothesis, whereas our guts had shrunk to to allow for you know more nutrient dense, you know, i.e., meat for nutrition, allowing us to grow a bigger brain. But also that impacted some of our body fat levels, and, and we're relatively fat as healthy uh, you know primates relative to like say a chimpanzee or something, where in their natural younger state they're relatively lean compared to even humans. And so, can you speak to to that requirement or that unique primate adaptation that we have? Yeah, I mean, if you look at a gorilla or a chimpanzee, they they might look fatter in that their abdomens are much larger, but that's actually all the space that's holding their colons. But as to actual body fat, we I think we're about three times fatter than you would expect for a primate, and that's particularly pronounced in infants and in women. And I think that that really speaks to our need to be able to use fat as fuel in a, in a way that um, indicates that we aren't getting it directly from fiber. Um, we we need to be getting it from, well, we evolved to be getting it from fatty meat. Um, I think it actually points to the connection that uh, to our unique ability as humans to use ketones for fuel. There. I have come across interesting discovery to me that other animals need to be in caloric restriction to get into ketosis and humans don't. We can even have more, much more protein than we need and still remain in ketosis and other animals can't do that. So to me it seems uh, to be a strong, a strong indicator that we had this long period of time during which we were getting a lot all of our protein needs met and we were still generating energy from ketones in a way that no other animal that I'm aware of does and I think that fat is probably the fat on our body is used for that and that's why infants have it. Infants are in ketosis even when they're breastfed until they're weaned onto cereals which I don't think they were <laughs> until maybe 10,000 years ago um, so I think that they needed to have access to fat for ketones, for energy, and for brain structure. I got a lot of um, information about that from Stephen Cunane, who has, has studied evolution, and in particular, the role of our brains and ketones in the brains. Zach, any, anything on that, Zach? You yeah, yeah, I actually have a follow-up question with that, and I find it kind of interesting because like I think you you're you're right on with that where humans are very very um, able to get into ketosis especially when when necessary and and, and likely way easier than other other animals. Um, the other thing I was was wondering about is I don't know that I get a lot of pushback on this, but it definitely comes up from time to time. Is this idea that like it's kind of an all or nothing thing where you have to either become a very very good fat burner um, or you have to go completely to the other side of the spectrum and be like all on high carbohydrate and kind of only maximize that fuel substrate. Um, do you have any thoughts or like ideas on, on like middle ground with that where 
like you can be more or less, I guess, metabolically flexible, where I guess from like a, you know, a hunter gatherer side of things would be like, let's say these, this group was eating mostly a ketogenic style diet and then came across a fruit tree. It's like, and they eat that fruit. Is that something that their body would, in your thoughts, like respond well to, or would it be something they would avoid or how does that kind of play into the picture? Yes, I do think that metabolic flexibility is the right term to be thinking about because even if you're if you're on a high carb diet, then you're essentially never going to get in ketosis because it it takes a couple of days to for all of your glycogen to go down enough for you to get into a, a kind of fat adapted state, right? Mm -hmm. When you're a child, that's less pronounced because children get into ketosis much more easily and they will get into ketosis overnight even if they're fed on a higher carb diet. Um, but if you're on a diet like we are where you're in mild ketosis most of the time, maybe right after you eat a big meal of lots of steak or something, you, your ketosis level might go down or even you might even go out of ketosis, but it's not going to take you a full two days for you to get back into that ketogenic state. And I, w I would think that everything that I've learned about physiology says that you want to have some of this anabolic state where your body is building that where the signals are saying we're gonna we're gonna build more muscle we're gonna build more neurons we're gonna build more um, mitochondria but the the stimulus of where to where to grow comes from the ketogenic state and it, it seems quite natural to go back and forth between the two we're not grazers we don't eat constantly all day and during during that period when we're not eating, if we were only in mild ketosis in the first place, uh, or we had gotten into a, a glucose state, maybe from eating fruit or maybe from finding some honey, then it's not going to take very long to get back and to go back and forth between those states. I actually think that staying closer to the line is much more natural and healthy than being at an extreme on either side. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what I had always suspected, too, because, like, I guess where the, where the pushback I got personally was within kind of, like, the training nutritional approach I take where when I get into kind of my peak training, I'm, you know, I'm upwards towards 20 hours a week, and then, like, when I'm in my specific phase of that, I'm doing some speed workouts specific to the race I'm training for, and, um, like, my, my principle that I kind of proposed was that I'll do like a little bit of a carb sneak or bring my carbs up to their highest point in my training, which is still relatively low. Um, at, at most, I usually get up to like 20%, maybe a couple times a year, 30%. And then I'll nail like a really hard workout. Um, and then right after that workout, I'll drop down to like that super low carb. Like I may have even played around with pure carnivore for the day or two after that. And like what I notice is when I do monitor ketones during that stuff, like I'm able to get back into ketosis pretty quickly after that workout. Once I kind of, you know, go back to that low carb approach, it's usually by that next day where I'm already, you know, in that clinical ketosis range if I measure things. So to me, that's like the fact that I can kind of find those higher gears in training um, tells me that I'm still accessing my glycogen stores. Uh, and then the fact that I can get back into ketosis much quicker than I would have when I first started the, the diet uh, tells me that that side of things is also probably pretty, pretty well optimized. 
Yeah, so I think probably with speed or or really high anaerobic exercise, you're if you're going to be competing at a a really high level, the glucose you need you need to be able to access glucose metabolism, and so it makes sense to add some there. There, I'm I am really a a novice amateur at lifting sports, but there was a time when I played around a little bit with the cyclical ketogenic diet in which you explicitly did a refeed on the weekend. And I, I can remember being back in ketosis fairly quickly because the refeed wasn't that extensive. It was just, you know, what I needed to to use that kind of fuel for the next workout. Yeah, and that's kind of where I I always try to point to too, because I'll get I'll get a lot where you know I do ultra marathon stuff. So a common thing that people will say is like, well, you're running. Sure, you're running ultra marathon, but it's at a relatively slow pace. So um, what about folks running like a five kilometer where they're kind of in that gray area? And my point to them always is like, even if you're training, like people always want to look at the race or the event itself, when in reality. You know, you have to look at the whole approach. So from the beginning of the training to the end, and then to the race, to kind of get an idea of of what's necessary. And even when someone's training for something that's a relatively short endurance race, like a three k or a five k, you know, they're still spending a huge amount of their their workouts in that more aerobic state, like usually eighty percent of it. So, like they could easily kind of, in my opinion, like kind of work the numbers in a way that's still a fat adapted move. But bringing those carbs back to nail some of those really fast interval sessions, and then, like you said, it's kind of like what you were explaining: like do the the refeed in time for the workout, and then when the workout's over and it's time to recover and get stronger from it, you know, kind of do that whole fat reset. Yeah, one of the things I know is because I also tried. You know, I, I you know I've been training forever. You know, I'm an old guy, but I you know, and I think it may be a, just a consequence of me being older that you know when I did the cyclic ketogenic diet, and I certainly did that. You know, I, I would I would kind of look forward to those carb refeeds initially, but then I started to realize that my body didn't really like it, and I don't know if it was a wrong choice of carbohydrates, perhaps, but I was getting a lot of GI irritation. I was you know I I just didn't feel as good. My joints hurt more, and I, I just felt for me. Having GI upset and sore joints wasn't a positive for for the overall training package, so that's why I kind of dropped that out, and I don't really play with that. Now there may be certain carbohydrates, perhaps ones that tend to be low in fiber that some people might tolerate better. You know, particularly you know uh, for just trying to get the, the the glucose. In my view, the really only benefit to plant food is getting you know getting the 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 energy from it i don't think that i think the phytonutrient stuff is all overblown personally i think you know you're getting energy i think we would not have sought out leafy vegetables because you know there's no there's no real energy there and we're looking for energy i think you know humans weren't going around 50,000 years ago saying i need to get some this phytonutrient they're saying i need food i need energy and they would have eaten those foods that would have been energy dense uh, amber just uh, to uh, the other one other thing we talked about was protein and ketosis Again, I've seen, you know, I, I've never been a big fan of measuring ketones. I just, don't, I just didn't feel that was an endpoint I really cared about. But I have seen a number of people that do switch over to carnivorous diets and, and eat a relatively high amount of protein that still maintain levels of ketosis, at least initially. And I think at some point you adapt and your what your production is and utilization is and your your waste is. It kind of varies. And so some people get very good at utilizing the ketones so the blood levels don't show up that well. 
So it may just be a, a kind of a worthless measurement anyway for many people. Let me get back to the question because you touched on about this thinking about what we might have been doing now. One of the things that people often like to do to try to determine what the most healthy way to eat is, is they look at these modern hunter-gatherer tribes. They, they, they like to point out folks like the Hadza in Tanzania and other places and say, well, this is what these guys are eating, and therefore this must be the healthy way because they have lots of fiber and they have you know berries and they have a little bit of animal food when they can get it and so on and so forth, and they have a very diverse uh, gut microbiome. Can you speak to why that may be problematic in determining what you know what humans may have eaten, you know, as we evolved, you know, assume, assuming humans have been on the planet for three million years, if you believe in the evolutionary model and you're not a creationist, but, you know, humans going back to Homo habilis and, and possibly if you want to consider some of the Australopithecines, quote unquote human, we've been, on, we've been on Earth for a long time. So speak to that and why that may be not necessarily, you know, the, the new hunter-gatherers that we have left may not be the, the ideal people to study. Sure. Well, I think you nailed it right on the head when you were talking about needing energy and not specifically needing phytonutrients. So when, when if you look even just a couple hundred years ago at what people, even more Western people, were eating, they were eating grains and meat. That There wasn't really a large contribution from a variety of vegetables. They might have had cabbage or something, but they weren't eating arugula and radicchio and, and tomatoes and that that's all that's all very new. Um, the if you look at grains and meat as what it's providing for people is energy and protein and the, the meat of course also contains the micronutrients that we need. If you go back further to before we had grain, then the only real possibility to get energy that wasn't coming from meat uh, would have had to have been tubers. But tubers back then were so fibrous. Even if you look at a carrot, I, I think the origin of the modern carrot started only a few hundred years ago, and it used to be a basically a, a very woody <laughs> kind of root that we bred and we bred. So all of these tubers really needed cooking to be able to release what glucose they had and even what glucose they had wasn't very much and it wouldn't have been available all all year round. What what comes out when you think about what we had to have been eating in order to be able to get energy was fatty meat and we would have had that in a way that we don't have as much access to that now because we we had megafauna. We were eating animals like the mammoth, for example, that are so so laden with fat that we could get enough energy by eating the, even without even resorting to as much of the marrow and the brains, there's just so much fat on their carcass that you would get a whole balanced meal right there and you wouldn't have to resort to looking for plants. But then what happened, of course, is that most of the animals that we had evolved eating were went extinct. And so then we had all of these people starting to try to find different solutions to what I like to call the energy crisis of the loss of the megafauna. So suddenly we had to find energy somewhere else from than fr just from animals because the animals weren't providing enough fat. 
And that's where you see all these local solutions where people have taken the roots uh, for energy or they've taken the local nuts for energy. Uh, coconut is, is very high fat. Um, and then, of course, the grains. Were, once we learned how to cultivate grains, then we had a big ability to get calories again. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting paper. I can't remember all the authors, but I know one of the authors was a guy named Mickey Bendor. I don't know if you've read that paper, probably, and it talks about uh, Homo erectus and, and early uh, you know early modern humans and and the the fact that they were just prodigious you know hunters of mammoths. And you know I think from my perspective, I think about what we had technologically wise, you know technology wise back then for hunting. We basically had some spears. And you know we have animals that their natural defense is to turn and face. You know that's how animal, that's how elephants. I've been African. When elephants feel threatened, they turn and face. They don't run away, and so they become relatively easy targets for for a, for a relatively intelligent animal that can throw projectiles at them, uh, as opposed to trying to hunt down an antelope or, God forbid, you try to get a bird. I mean, can you try? Can you imagine trying to kill a bird? Uh, you know, with a spear back then, and so I think that's one of the reasons that we, I think so many people on this diet prefer these fatty cuts of you know red meat, and I think the ribeye steak and other ones become so much. Uh, there's so much appeal to that because I think that's built into our DNA from from back then when we easily could have killed all these mammoths, and you know I think it's. Uh, uh, it's just very interesting reading, and I think that's. I think you're right. I mean, you know, we didn't. We didn't. When we can, we can argue about when we got fire. You know, some people say as far back as a million and a half. A lot of people think somewhere around six hundred thousand. You know, I think it's 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 contested when that actually started. But you know, prior to that, and considering even still, the majority of our evolution was, you know, even if you could get tubers and you didn't have fire, there's no way. You know, can you imagine gnawing on a piece of wood? Basically, is what you what you what you have available to you, and then you know, no one's. No one's going after the leaves because the leaves on the plants are, are they, they're so bitter. They haven't been bred down. We haven't got all that toxicity out of there. So it, it's just, uh, you know, again, you could argue they, they were eating fruit. And, and I know there's a big group of people that say that humans are frugivores and we, we still should be back up in the trees doing that stuff. But again, as you know, dramatic changes in the climate where, where uh, most of our evolution, so particularly over the last half million years, showed us in times where you know it's cold and it dries out and so we lose much of that geography does not support uh, tropical climates like today we you know the last 10 15,000 years have been a rare warm period for the planet earth you know all this tropical fruit that we have available was not available or at least not in wide wide varieties throughout much of much of uh, you know the, the earth's uh, geography for for most of when we were growing up as humans right and if you look at chimps they they're some people call them frugivores, but I think that's kind of misleading because a lot of the fruit that they're eating is mostly pith, and they're eating their their fallivores. They're eating a lot of leaves. What they're able to do is they still have the ability to house a lot of microbes to break down all that fiber and turn it into useful fat calories in the 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 um, the the volatile fatty acids where they're getting most of their calories from. Uh, Mickey Bendor, who you mentioned on that paper, which is uh, Man the Fat Hunter, he also did an analysis of chimpanzee diet and showed how the, even though it looked on the surface like it was a fruit diet, and so you might think it's mostly carbohydrate, it only came down to, I think it was about 15% carbohydrate out of that diet when you realize that most of it was fat from the fiber. It's interesting even if you compare 
chimpanzee physiology to gorilla physiology, you know, the chimpanzees will choose a diet that is, you know, tends to be a little bit even lower in fiber than, than gorillas because gorillas have a even better fermentation capacity. And you've talked about the limited capacity that humans have and then how, you know, the fiber we get can be converted to, you know, the uh, short chain fatty acids, but it's, we only have a relatively limited capacity, you know, relative to these other primates. So it's, I don't know if you want to mention that again. Yeah, it's unclear to me exactly how much we can digest, but even the ADA, which is a, a fiber-supporting uh, group, has said previously on their website, don't eat more than about 25 to 30 grams of fiber, because you could have severe digestive issues. Um, it could actually cause blockages and problems if you eat too much fiber, and if you do a kind of back of the envelope calculation about how much fat you could get, it's a, I think it's about two calories per gram, so that's, that's going to be less than 100 calories that you could even manage to get from fiber. Zach, do you have anything? I've got a couple more. For yeah, that's, that's all interesting stuff. And I know like when I first kind of heard a, like along those lines when I was kind of looking into kind of like, you know, like what are we burning as a fuel source across like everything, not just humans. And, and, and I, th I can't remember where it was I saw it, but it kind of was an aha moment for me when I saw that like ruminants, you know, they're eating these uh they're eating you know plants essentially but then the plants are essentially getting broken down into fatty acids and it's the fatty acids that they're actually using as a fuel source so then when you look at actually what's being metabolized it's fat so like um you know it's really kind of just a fascinating thing to to consider when you try to wonder about like you know what is the more like long-term like sustainable fuel source that you can kind of rely on um when you're thinking about that type of stuff Hey Amber, um, this is something I know because you you recently got back from Hungary and you met with the the, the group, the Paleo Medicina group, with Saba Toth and Sophia Clemens and some of the other folks over there, who are doing some research on what they call the the Paleolithic ketogenic diet, which my understanding is, in many cases, just a, a meat and fat diet. You know, I think there's they have some adaptations for different conditions, and they 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 want they had like a two or three day open house, and I know I think you presented there. And you learned some stuff there. Would you be willing to share some of the some of the knowledge you gained from there? And uh, if you, if you if you want to, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Yeah, it was a really eye-opening experience for me because well, I had known about them for a while. I've read some of their case studies. The first one I came across was a paper about uh, someone with Crohn's disease whom they treated with an all-meat diet, and the symptoms, of course, completely resolved. And they even had some sections devoted to the to emphasizing that if the person strayed from the diet, even onto foods that are considered in the paleo world to be safe, like kind of a paleo cake type food, that the symptoms returned with a vengeance as soon as they did that. Um, so I was very interested in their practice. I'd never heard of anybody. Um, actually clinically practicing with an all-meat diet. You're right that they they do have kind of two versions of the, they call it the Paleolithic Ketogenic Diet, or the PKD for short, and the version that they use that they consider kind of preventive that 
uh, is tolerable for a human who's not under any particular condition or distress would include some 30% by volume of certain kinds of vegetables, not all vegetables, certainly not nightshades, only ones that are, that are the least inflammatory. But then anyone who has any kind of serious medical condition is put on an all-meat diet. And the, the ways that that diet differs from, say, the standard zero-carb diet that more of our audience might be familiar with is that it's explicitly ketogenic. It's supposed to be high fat, around 80% fat. And they exclude dairy products, even though that's not obviously a plant. And they uh, also explicitly recommend that you eat organ meats. But other than that, it's very close to what you and I know many people uh, who have been seeing all kinds of health improvements eating. So. It was really fascinating to go there and see some of their case studies. They presented some more case studies, and I actually got to meet some of the patients. And then they had more open talks where they they talked about uh, various aspects of, for example, intestinal permeability, which they believe is one of the primary mechanisms by which plants are harming people, causing autoimmune conditions. I don't really know a lot about the science behind intestinal permeability and autoimmune conditions. I first heard of it when I read a paper or skimmed a paper by Lauren Cordain many years ago. I read it, um, but I didn't pay it a lot of attention because, well, <laughs> for selfish reasons, really, I, I had been interested in figuring out why I was getting such a uh, health improvement on going from a very low-carb diet to a zero-carb diet. And the paper was a, mainly about the particularly insidious lectins that are in grains and legumes and how that was uh, breaking down the tight junctions in the intestinal wall and causing an autoimmune response. And because I wasn't eating grains or legumes, even on a low-carb diet, I didn't see it as being relevant to why I would be getting an improvement. And moreover, I didn't see my depressive disorder as having anything to do with autoimmunity. Now I'm, I'm kind of reconsidering that and what, what autoimmunity means in the first place. But what I, another thing I didn't realize at the time is that all plants have lectins in them of some form or another, and intestinal permeability issues caused by lectins doesn't have to be restricted to just the eating of grains and legumes, even though that might be the, the worst offenders. So now that completely rekindled my interest in that whole science, and I don't have a lot to say about the specifics of it because I, I'm just beginning to delve into the research behind it, but it's really given me renewed hope about finding out why this works, because for a long time I've just had to live with the knowledge that it does work for me and that it does work for a lot of people, but not really understanding the full story behind why. Yeah, I'm hoping this, you know, we'll eventually get some of the science behind this is people will sort of take away the stigma from, you know, meat's going to cause an immediate heart attack and the saturated fat is going to immediately kill you because clearly, and I know you've been a witness to this, is we've seen this sort of 
crazy carnivore zero car movement continued to to grow very rapidly we're seeing daily people saying you know all the same thing you know my my autoimmune issues my rheumatoid arthritis my depression my you know my Crohn's disease all these things are going away you know my even even plain old vanilla osteoarthritis I see that every day people say that stuff goes away so it's it's fascinating and hopefully we'll be able to dig into the science and hopefully we'll be able to um, you know, not have to, you know, kind of run under the cover of night and we can bring it out in the, into the open and, and some, some, some uh, enterprising researchers will take this stuff on. You know, uh, I know that uh, uh, there's a lot of work being done from the community and, and, and you and I are part of that. And I think that this is giving some hope to a lot of people that have really been in hopeless situations. A lot of these diseases, you know, even depression, you know, and, and certainly some of the autoimmune diseases are basically kind of considered hopeless cases because we don't have very good treatments. We throw you know, steroids at them, we throw immune modulating drugs, but we don't have any sense of how to cure this stuff. And, and we're, we're starting to see this stuff uh, on these carnivorous diets, which I think is really, really fascinating. Zach, do you have another another point you want to make? Yeah, I mean, just, just that, like, if you're going to take the approach of food as medicine, just to build on what you were saying, Sean, it's like, it's hard, it really becomes hard to ignore when you see people kind of reverse these things. I mean, uh, your website, the meatheals.com one is, I think, one of the more like, like clear examples of that, where there's like people showing up day in and day out, turning in their testimonials of how they've had some pretty noticeable reversals on some conditions that, like, I think anyone would agree it would be less than ideal to have to even go through a normal, a normal workday with. So, um, you know, that's if if you're more curious about that, I think definitely head over there and read some of those testimonials and see what see what you think there but you know I agree like you know when we have a society where like you can't talk about stuff like this it becomes it becomes dangerous in the sense that like whoa, whoa what happens to those people who are finding you know finding their health and finding their success with that you know how do they kind of like spread the word to other people who may be suffering from the same thing but just not knowing of that research so like you said I think you know kind of being able to bring that out into the light is you know great to have that tool available to people um, not, not to diverge too much, but like, you know, one question I often get to, and, and this is, I think just as much related to, or more so related to just the ketogenic diet in general, um, or any low fat or low carb, high fat diet is that, you know, I'll, I'll often get asked like, well, how does that, how does it differ from men and women? And like, you know, how do like, do men benefit from this, but women don't, or like they're, they're curious. And, you know, I, I, not being a woman, I, I have a hard time like kind of unpacking that from personal experience. But you know, from my, my, my just thought process is kind of along the lines of like, you know, as a society, like, it seems like, over the past few decades, um, it's like, it's kind of like been a stigma for women uh, to not be fit and healthy, like they're, they're looking at these like almost unachievable images of what society expects them to be, which kind of sets them up for failure in the sense that, you know, to try to achieve that, they're going through all these different like, like yo-yo dieting type stuff. So then when it does come to time to like, you know, really try to get healthy, the, the metabolic type of like disaster that had been created from years and years of just like poor information is maybe a little harder to kind of bounce back from. Whereas you get like kind of the society's view of like, you know, a guy can kind of be fat and jolly and not skip a beat. And uh, so for them to switch to a ketogenic diet, it's like, 
it seems like there's maybe less of a like a nutrient deficiency type of a situation and you know that's kind of some broad sweeping generalizations on my part but i'd just be curious to see like you know what your thoughts are on that type of stuff you know it's it's kind of ironic because some people think that women think of women as more fragile in a sense and they associate meat with robustness and with men and they think of women as being sort of weaker and um, <laughs> and associate them with more kind of salad and green <laughs> green foods and vegetarianism and yet at the same time women have much higher nutritional needs when they're of reproductive age because their bodies are always on the ready for holding an entire other human being to grow inside of them. And so I agree with you that women are under a lot of pressure to be fit and healthy, but what that looks like in our society is way too thin in a lot of cases for what a woman's natural body is supposed to be. So first of all, women should be carrying more fat, but they also need a lot of nutritional density. And I, I would almost want to say that women need a carnivorous diet more than men do, <laughs> which, which is the opposite of, for some reason, the, the image that we have of women. I think that there, there was a long period uh, that was maybe epitomized by the Victorian era where you think of women as you, you want to repress their lusty natures and not have um, meat is associated with a, a certain kind of carnality that is not appropriate for a certain kind of feminine ideal. Even today, though, where we consider ourselves to be pretty much equal in society, if, if I go to a restaurant and order a meal of a steak, it's almost, it's almost a surprise. Many times when I've been at a restaurant with, with a man, and if he ordered chicken and I ordered steak, the waiter would get it confused in his mind and get, put the steak in front of the man and put the chicken in front of me. It's just expected that I should not be wanting such highly dense caloric and nutritional food. Um, some people think that women have this need for carbohydrates more than men do and that um, women just aren't cut out physiologically even for a low-carb diet, let alone a carnivorous diet. And we do see sometimes that people, women who go on a low-carb diet suffer from fatigue and lack of energy and um, maybe irritability and don't seem to handle it that well. But what I'm pretty sure is going on in those cases is that women who are attracted to ketogenic diets and in many cases carnivorous diets are there because they know it will help them lose weight and they're trying to lose weight it to such a 
strong degree that they're not giving themselves enough calories or they are limiting their protein to get a certain level of ketosis. And then, yeah, you're going to be tired, but it's not because you need more carbohydrates. It's because you need more calories or you need more protein. You need to feed your body. Yeah, it's one of the things, Amber, that I that I tell people in general when they switch over that just eat to satisfaction. Make sure you're getting enough food because one of the biggest probably mistakes people make is they under eat. Um, I know we did a little. I, I kind of conducted a poll in one of the larger groups zeroing in on health, and I asked, you know, for the people that failed to lose weight or actually gain body fat, and the majority of those people that did were women, and, and particularly women that had a history of severe caloric restriction, those people that had been serial dieting their whole life. And I think the funny thing, and you probably can, can sort of echo this, is that many of those women that actually even put on body fat will often say, well, why are you still doing it? It's because I feel better. My joint pain got better. My digestion gets better. My mood feels better. I'm actually happy now, and I'm okay with a little bit more body fat. So I think it, I think it goes to, you know, what is the what is a normal human physique? I know we have this idealized Hollywood, you know, fitness model physique, but I mean, really, those people that are walking around it, you know, as a male at six percent body fat or a female at ten or twelve percent body fat, it's unsustainable. It, it's not a pleasurable experience. And, you know, I, I have people asking me constantly, what do I got to do to get super lean? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just, just don't worry about nutrition and feeling good and performing good. And I think that is one of the things we have this weird cultural expectation overlaid on some biology that may not support that. And I think we have to sort of, you know, again, there's going to be people always out there like, this podcast is about outliers and sports, and so we've got these freaks. And we've got the freaks of society, which I'm happy to be part of, and Zach's happy to be part of, and we'll speak to that stuff. But I think for the average person looking at how do I get healthy and just enjoy my life and, and be, you know, be where I want to be, uh, I think you have to put aside this, this sort of ideal image of what your body composition needs to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a common problem in athletics with women that they reduce their body fat so much that their reproductive system basically shuts down, right? So we, we don't want that. You mentioned um, women, not just women, but women who had a long history of caloric restriction. And what I'm wondering is, I know that we've seen some kinds of metabolic damage where if you put people on a basically a starvation diet for a long time, and then you feed them again, their body settles down at a higher body fat than it did before, and there may be some kind of um, memory damage that's going on that is playing into that for people who are struggling with with weight, in particular when they start feeding themselves again. Yeah, it seems like uh, like if you've if you've done enough damage, it's and I think this is a lot of times the roadblock is you almost have to take a in their mind anyway is take a step back and in order to take two steps forward. So that step back and oftentimes I think is where a lot of times people kind of fall off or say, well, this isn't working because they see that immediate in their mind this negative circumstance of putting on a couple extra pounds in that first month or something like that. Um, as opposed to looking at it like, okay, I'm letting my body kind of finally heal and catch up, and if I just kind of keep going, it'll eventually optimize where where it should be and where I'm supposed to be, and um, that can be hard to do. So it's a it's a tough journey, I'm sure. And Sean mentioned that there were people who gained weight and yet they're continuing to do the carnivorous diet because it gives them some other other benefit. I had 
the opportunity to survey some long-term carnivores and I got I'm not I'm spacing on the number of respondents that I got I think it was 36 but anyway we looked at different symptoms and if you had them to some degree on a low-carb diet did they improve on a zero-carb diet or not and in the areas of digestion of autoimmune conditions and of mood they improved almost uniformly to a great degree especially mood it was really quite striking and in weight gain and insulin resistance type of symptoms there was still most people improved going from a low-carb diet to a zero-carb diet but in that area in particular there were there was a significant minority of people who did gain weight but all of those people to Sean's point were people who were long-term carnivores and that that means that they were getting so much benefit from some other aspect of the diet that the weight became secondary or it was it was an acceptable trade-off for what they were getting yeah I mean it's and again I should emphasize that the, the majority of people do still tend to lose weight that's been those are definitely in the minority and uh, I also you know we ran this n equals many experiment back later earlier last year I had a, several hundred people that we surveyed similar we, we surveyed their 90-day experience and almost universally we saw similar things improvements in mood improvements in digestion improvements in sleep improvements in libido improvements generally in body composition and a whole host, host of other things you know we it was just fairly uniformly positive generally now that you know that's uh, you know obviously there's a lot of confirmation bias and there's a lot of self-selection and that sort of stuff with people that stayed in but 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 nonetheless it, it's very encouraging information and hopefully we'll be able to further the, the science on this stuff and and, and, and kind of go from there Amber what else anything I know you're in, a, in the midst of writing a book on this stuff if I'm not mistaken how, how is that going and where 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 do you stand and when when's that going to come out because I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people that are going to want to read this um, I, I know I certainly will I, I respect all that you've done over the years for bringing some of the science out here, uh, uh, you know, like I said, I think you're a, you're a very intelligent, logical person, and I think it's you know I think you, you're very uh, careful about how you uh, you know use you know you, you you sort of develop your ideas, and I think that's that's to be applauded, and uh, you know I think like I said, I'm looking forward to it. So what what do we know about your your book? Thanks for asking about it. Yeah, I've never written a book before, and it's a new experience for me because I, what I want for this book is that it's something that is readable not just to a really scientific geeky audience which is more what I've focused on in my blog but to help people understand whether or not this kind of diet can help them and to lay to rest fears that they may have about the necessity of plants in their diet so that they can know that it's something that it's safe for them to try and give them hope for the conditions that we've talked about. I think it's really an exciting time to be for us because diseases like autoimmune conditions, like you mentioned that arthritis is something that we normally, when I was growing up and even now when I talk to other people who aren't in this very niche community, arthritis is considered, it's just considered an inevitable kind of aging 
disease and that there's no cure for it, you just manage it, you, you just take anti-inflammatories and hope that it doesn't prevent you eventually from doing the things that you love to do. And to be at a place where many people are seeing reversal of this and even harder problems and just getting their lives back is amazing. And so the reason that I wanted to write this book is to help more people know that they have this option and that it isn't something that they need to be afraid of. Yeah, I think, you know, again, we, we have this, and I get, you know, as you know, I get asked these questions all the time, and it's like, you know, what about the saturated fat? What about red meat causing cancer? What about your vitamin deficiencies? And I, I think in general, you know, at least in the niche low-carb community, we're seeing a lot of those things being, those fears being allayed by, by just continuously demonstrating people that aren't having those problems. And I think the sort of the next, sort of the last great hurdle will be once we can start to, to demonstrate arterial health, you know, through some of these advanced imaging studies where we have these long-term carnivores that all say, I'm going to get my carotid artery scanned. And, if, and if, if a whole bunch of them come out and say, hey, there's nothing there, then at least we can sort of, you know, allay that fear. You know, there's still the, the cancer scare about the colon cancer, you know, association. You know, again, all these associational studies, which it drives me crazy when people try to make these big, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, cognitive leaps on associational studies and saying, like, this is what's really going on. Uh, I know, uh, I know you, as you know, Dr. Georgies does some good work on, on sort of debunking some of that uh, red meat equals colon cancer thing, and maybe we can, Zach, she might be a great guest to have on. I'll see if we can get her on here because she's she's got a she's another one of these uh, just brilliant people that is has kind of she's kind of a part time almost a carnivore, and she's given a lot of thought to that, and so that's me. So any any parting words on how we allay fears about you know this stuff that keeps keeps coming up? I, if I don't have fiber, my colon's going to fall out. All the micro bacteria. Are gonna, you know, they're gonna digest my mucus and eat my colon. I mean, it's just the, the insanity is just, you know, it, it, you know, the uh, the mythology is, is just well, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's it's in the conscious and it's hard to get out of there. Well, each one of those could be a whole rant in and of itself. But you mentioned Georgia Eid, and when I found Georgia Eid's work, it really turned a corner in my thinking because it hadn't occurred to me before I read and listened to her that the obvious in retrospect fact that plants did not evolve on this planet in order to feed us. They have their own agenda. They want to live and they want to reproduce. And any plant that didn't come up with a way to fight off would-be eaters didn't survive to the next generation. And because they can't run away, there are very few options for them. So some of them have thorns, for example, and that's that can be somewhat effective. But basically, all plants have developed a biochemical defense against being eaten that is specifically functionally evolved in order to attack the eater. And once I realized that plants Plant eating is something that our, that our bodies have to do in a way to counter all of the toxins that have de developed over the eons to try to hurt us. I recognized that maybe plants aren't just a, a beneficial thing that was given to us in the Garden of Eden. 
Hey, what do you think about hormesis? Because a lot of people will use the hormesis argument. You know, we got to have a little bit of poison to toughen us up. Um, you know, I'm 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 kind of the point. Well, let's just skip the poison and, and don't need it. But, but I mean, what do you what do you what do you how do you counter that argument? Or do you think there's any validity to that argument? Or what, what are your thoughts on this hormetic? You know, we need we need these little bit of toxins to to make us more robust and more you know able to live in all these different environments. Well, the hormesis argument usually applies to a toxin where you take a little bit of this poison and your body gives such a great counter defense against it that the you get residual benefit from having done that. Um, it goes beyond just fighting off the toxin. And usually it's an antioxidant response. And what the thing about antioxidants is that our bodies generate much more higher quantity and much more powerful antioxidants than you could ever get from the the little response that you get to eating eating a plant simply by removing sugar from your body simply by going into a ketogenic metabolism and so maybe if you're on a high carb diet you might get some benefit from an antioxidant exogenously, but it just seems like really weak medicine in comparison to removing all the plants and, and particularly all the sugar in the first place. Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept, or not concept, but an interesting bit of biochemistry that when we go on these sort of ketogenic or near ketogenic diet, our endogenous antioxidants, things like glutathione, they, they're upregulated, and so we're, we have a, a better capacity to deal with reactive oxygen species and oxidative damage as compared to, you know, eating the, the acai berries or the super berries that are somehow going to give us that magic boost. The mechanism involved in that particular response is the same one that's involved in smoking, and nobody's going to argue, as far as I know, to smoke, you know, one cigarette a day or something to keep that <laughs> keep that body response uh, fighting off the toxin. I think we would universally agree it's better just not to smoke at all. I don't understand why the why people don't feel the same way about plants. Well, I mean, tobacco obviously is a is a, is a plant derived product, but I mean, like I said, even yourself, you you know, you have caffeine, and, and as you know, caffeine is an insecticide. I mean, that's why they were, caffeine was evolved, and so we've all got this. Some people use the the the, the uh, sort of argument that moderation of of, of alcohol is, has been associated with longer life in certain certain populations, and so I think you know, like I said, I know you and many other people in the in the carnivorous and zero carb community will say you know plants in a medicinal purpose may may be maybe a benefit, and I guess you know again there's always risk benefits that you have to have to weigh those things out. True, guilty as charged. I do drink coffee, but <laughs> <laughs> recreationally. <laughs> And you're right. I I have no qualms about medicine. You, what, and if you can derive a medicine from a plant, then and it helps you, that's fantastic. I just don't see it as something you should do in sort of minute quantities o over time as a preventive. Yeah, no, I can see that. You know, um, it'll be interesting. You know, I I I always wonder. You know, if I could speak 
the Inuit language, and I could get up there and I could find this old grandma that's been, you know, living, you know, 90 years old, and, and pick her brains on all these <laughs> things we see in the zero carb community. People, what, what am I doing about cramps? And what am I? They probably could just tell you this is what you're supposed to do, but I don't think we have access to these folks, and, and there's very few of them left, unfortunately. I know we're going to have. Uh, I know Charles Washington is going to come on the show, and it'll be fun to talk to him. Oh, Charles, fantastic! Charles is a marathon runner, and, and obviously, he's—I think—he's coming up in 11 years uh, as a carnivore. And so, him and Zach should have some interesting stuff to talk about fueling strategy. But I, I, I'm going to ask Charles about that. I think, you know, like I said, if we could get one of these, you know, ancient Inuits and just say, "Hey, come on our forum and answer all these questions," because I'm sure they know the answer. It'd be kind of <laughs> cool. Maybe by episode 100, we'll have an Inuit on. <laughs> 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 Maybe so. Um, Zach, do you have anything else? I don't, Amber, Amber, is there anything else you want to talk about? I know we got. I know you're running out of time and, and uh, stuff. But I mean, if there's any other topics you think we need to cover or anything new or cool that that, that, that people need to know about, not that I can think of. Yeah, she, Amber, you, you answered all of my my questions. I think, uh, and and probably a lot of the listeners as well. So I think this one will be very. Very informative for folks. Um, looking forward to getting it out. Uh, before we before we do leave, if you have uh, anything you want to share in terms of where people can find you on social media, websites, and stuff, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Sure, that's great. Uh, my Twitter handle is Keto Carnivore, and um, my primary website is Empirica with a dot ca. So e m p i r i dot ca, and I also have Another blog called ketotic.org. Yeah, those are great. I've been to both of those and read all the stuff on there. It's wonderful stuff. You guys, please go look at that. Please follow Amber on Twitter. Um, we've got, uh, Zach, we've got Chris Bell coming on in a couple days. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's the uh, producer of the film Bigger, Stronger, Faster, and a bunch of other documentaries. Um, he is going to be interesting. We've got Owen Franks coming up. He is a New Zealand All Black rugby player, one of the best rugby players in the world, and he has been on a carnivore diet for the last five or six months and doing well. So it'll be interesting to talk about a, a top-level world champion professional athlete and how he's incorporating it into his diet. So those are the things coming up. Anything else, Zach? I think that's it. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with both those next interviews. And uh, you know, thanks again, Amber, for coming on. And uh, uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future if, you're, if you have time for it. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you like this episode or any of the previous ones, please consider sharing the links on social media and help us continue to spread the word. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning into the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com that's hpopodcast at gmail.com we're both also on social media on twitter you can find me at zbitter that's at z-b-i-t-t-e-r and you can find sean at sbakermd that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d we're both also on instagram where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast.